Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to Whispers from the Heart, a mini-series of conversations about our relationships with the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I've been howling for more. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. And we're back. It's Michael Leader here, talking as always with Jake Cunningham. Hello. And Steph Watts. Hi. So... This is a bit of a different thing for us, isn't it? A new sort of mini-series called... I mean, I, I can't uh, take credit for the title. I think, Steph, you came up with it, didn't you? Yeah, I can't remember. I definitely floated the idea uh, all aboard the chat bus, which I think was swiftly rebuked, but uh, Whispers from the Heart is is lovely, no matter who came up with it. I think it's just so wholesome and really gets the vibe of what we're going to be doing with this mini-series, which is talking with fellow travellers through the world of Studio Ghibli, some of whom are animators, some of whom work for Ghibli, writers as well. It's going to be such a nice, cosy mini-series, I think, now that the, the nights are getting longer and the cold is getting is drawing in. And we're going to be starting this series talking about a studio that maybe has the most direct comparisons to Ghibli out there in the current market. Would you say that's fair? Cartoon Saloon? I think so, yeah. So they, it's become a bit of a cliche to refer to them as the Irish Studio Ghibli or the uh, to refer to Tom Moore, one of our interviews today, as the Miyazaki of Kilkenny. Uh, but it is true. Uh, their, their films have a similar balance between storytelling, environmental themes and experimentation, but also the sense that they focus... Well, they, they do TV animation and shorts too, but their focus on the feature film as, as a major statement does put them in the similar, I think definitely the similar leagues to Ghibli, but also in similar conversations too. And for me, a cartoon saloon film, Song of the Sea, uh, was one that I saw in cinemas before I'd seen any Ghibli in cinemas as well. So in my own kind of awkward chronology of watching all of these things, I knew their work on the big screen before I knew Ghibli's. Mm-hmm. Steph, did you know Cartoon Saloon's work or are you relatively, relatively new to them? Not really. I mean, I'd heard of them, but Wolf Walkers is the first one from Cartoon Saloon that I've seen and I loved it. So I definitely need to go back and kind of delve into all of their earlier works. 
I think this is a great opportunity to do that because Wolfwalkers is, I mean, as we speak, it's in UK cinemas, but it will be coming to Apple TV Plus uh, for Christmas in December. Um, but this seems to be getting a bigger push than all their films so far. And it's so great when that happens, when you know that they have three previous films in the chamber that people can go and discover. They've been innovating and excelling over the last 10 years, decade or so, um, from The Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, as you mentioned, Jake, and then The Breadwinner. These films that are released by G-Kids in the States, most of which are released by Studio Canal over here in the UK, they do get into Oscar contention and conversation. They do get festival releases. So um, an absolutely brilliant body of work. We should say that we are talking to the co-directors of Wolfwalkers today. That is Tom Moore, one of the co-founders of the studio, but also Ross Stewart, who previously worked as concept artist and art director on a few of Cartoon Saloon's work, as well as actually concept art on Paranorman, the Leica Studios uh, film, (laughs) which is another studio that sometimes gets talked about in similar conversations with Ghibli and Cartoon Saloon. But uh, Ross is co-directing this one. But what I love about Cartoon Saloon is that unlike Ghibli, and I think we mentioned this in the conversation, they're much more collegiate in spirit. Across our conversations about Ghibli, we've said how there's been this tension between the generations, between Hayao Miyazaki and everyone else in, in terms of who gets to have control, directorial control over the films. But what's great about Cartoon Saloon is they do have co-directors. They also have directors who are rising through the ranks. Nora Toomey, who directed The Breadwinner, is also working on a film that's coming out next year, I believe. I can't wait to see that. So it's great to be able to talk to two people from Cartoon Saloon at the same time. So here is our conversation with Ross Stewart and Tom Moore. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, so I'm not sure how much uh, John gave you in terms of context for what we do. Yeah, I, I actually realized I'd listened to some of your stuff before about Mononoke and stuff. So. Oh, fab. Yeah. Oh, great. Thank you for listening. Uh, yeah, I, so, yeah, no surprise then. We are a Ghibli-focused like, yeah. podcast, even though our tastes do 
range quite broad beyond that and yeah, yeah. and i I like podcasts, you know, I listen to them a lot when I'm working. It's been a while, but when I would be working on something that I could just get immersed in, I would always look for interesting podcasts. And I remember there was a period where I was looking for Ghibli stuff and I came across you guys. It's the benefit of being one of the only ones. <laughs> we can say we're the world's best. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We always say we're the best animation studio in Kilkenny. And now we've got another studio in Kilkenny. We're like, damn. <laughs> Cool. So, um, yeah, so please uh, excuse us if we're going to talk a bit about Ghibli up top. Um, this will oh, be going no, no, in a mini series that we've put together where yeah. we're talking to, gosh, directors, filmmakers, writers uh, who all have some sort of like personal connection to Ghibli. And we sort of talk yeah. about that and maybe the influence that we see in their in their work that we love. We're Ghibli um, fans. I was just saying to John that you'll be impressed. I have a, a layout drawing by by Miyazaki on my mug, I, it's shining too much. But I went to, a, I went to a, a, a exhibition of Takahata and Miyazaki's layout drawings in Paris because they do a lot of the layout posing themselves, you know, especially Miyazaki. And I got a mug of his layout posing of that scene where Ashitaka is shooting the arrow. So, That's go. very cool. <laughs> so should we kick off, Jake, with the first? Yeah, I think we. I mean, we're two minutes in and we've been out nerded already. But, uh, <laughs> Let, let, let's actually do an official start shall we yeah so tom moore ross stewart thank you so much for joining us uh, for this episode today so first question let's head this off at the pass uh cartoon saloon referred to as the irish ghibli one too many times maybe maybe it doesn't get old maybe it's becoming a bit of a cliche for you now but i'd really like to ask what your personal relationships are with ghibli are you fans yeah, I'm a big fan for a long time, but I, I came kind of late to the party. I wasn't aware of them as a kid, and I wish I'd seen their movies as a kid. I discovered them as an animation uh, student, and then over the years, um, came more and more in love with the, the themes, the, the stuff that they explored in their films, and uh, felt a kinship that way. You know. Yeah, I think when we were younger, um, we didn't really have much access to like to anime and and to um, stuff basically outside of like mainstream comics and and mainstream films. But uh, yeah, it was when we got to animation college, we we were able to explore a lot more. And um, yeah, as Tom was saying, it, it I, I just often wonder what I would have made of some of the stories as a kid if I had seen them back in like the eighties, you know. Well, that's that's actually one of the themes of the conversations that Jake and I have had over the years with the podcast is that. You know, I'm of the age where I was just, a, you know, just the perfect age to, as a teenager, uh, becoming of age when Spirited Away was the one that oh, got the big international push, mm, and also yeah. managed to get Princess Mononoke in Chinatown yeah. in Manchester on a dodgy Region Three DVD before that. Wow. But um, that really changed everything, and it must have been so um, such an eye opener to see those when, films. That when I was in college, I I'd been reading Japanese manga in a in a kind of reprint comic called Manga Mania. And um, and I knew of like, you know, Akira and things like that. Yeah. It was only until I was in university or in studying animation that there was a lot of buzz about Mononoke was going to be distributed by Harvey Weinstein, ironically. But I remember that that was kind of people were saying this is going to be the breakthrough. I don't know if it was the breakthrough people were talking about, animation fans, but at the time, the Disney movies were like you know the high point of the hand-drawn disney movies in the late 90s and the beginning of pixar and everything so i remember for coming into my consciousness pretty late and expecting it to be much more schlocky and being impressed by just how spiritual it was you know yeah exactly so what was the first one you saw would that have been mononoke or spirited away or it was mononoke it was spirited away for me as well yeah 
Um, but I, I just remember how, like, how utterly bizarre they were, like, um, you know, just especially with Spirited Away, just like the, the lengths that they could go to, like how utterly surreal some of the, some of the, the characters heads, and some the of the events. The yeah, and I was just thinking, like, even at the time, you know, like as a kid, it might have actually blown my mind and caused some mental illness. But um, as, an ad- <laughs> as an adult, I was just going, wow, this is like the most trippy stuff you could ever imagine. But then, can you can you speak, uh, Tom, to that sense of the spiritualism that you found, the spirituality you found in these films? Because that's something that is reflected, I think, in the cartoon saloon films that we know and love. Is this sense yeah. of something deeper going on? Yeah, it was interesting as well because I didn't know if, it, like, my son was pretty young at the time, and he was maybe like eight or nine when he first watched uh, Mononoke, and I remember watching it with him. And of course, he was drawn in by the action adventure. But we had some really great discussions about the the aspect of it that really showed the worldview of nature and man and the fact that he was able to find this kind of middle ground to be sympathetic towards Lady Aboshi, like the way she treated the prostitutes and the and the lepers was really humane, but the way she treated the animals was so like destructive. And um I thought it led to some like much deeper than something like Pocahontas or Fern Gully that had a similar sort of, you know, you know, man versus nature thing going on, but so much more simplistic than Mononoke. Mononoke was so, and then just technically, I mean, Mononoke technically was just one of the high points of hand-drawn animation. Like it's, it's like nothing else. Our 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 assistant director is still still talks about um, watching um, Princess Mononoke frame by frame the yeah. entire film. <laughs> <laughs> what? He shares he shares an apartment with the head of um, digital. Yeah. Digital Ink and Paint, and they're both nerdy enough that they sit and analyze it frame by frame. Yeah, but I think for him, just to just to figure out how they actually pulled off some of the shots, because uh, for Tom myself doing Wolfwalkers anyway, we left a lot of that technical stuff to him. You know, like how to how to arrange like camera moves uh, on layouts and everything. So his in depth analysis of Mononoke definitely helped. And and is this kind of technical aspect of it, the actual making of the animation that Michael and I just have no insight into? And so I'd I'd love to ask both of you when you when you're watching a Ghibli, other than the, the the story, the themes that are in there, what are you looking at in the animation that is so inspiring? What happened for me was uh, I was at Toronto International Film Festival uh, promoting Song of the Sea at the exact same time that Takahata was there with Princess Kaguya, and I hadn't seen anything of Kaguya prior to this, and um, uh, I'd been doing these interviews and saying, oh, hand drawn animation can do so much more. Uh, than it's been allowed to do and it can be much more expressive and everything and then I went to the Winter Garden Theatre and watched Kaguya and had my you know my ass kicked because I just was amazed how much he was how bravely he was allowing the animators drawings to be up there on the big screen and from a technical point of view how deftly he was mixing like CG effects with very hand-drawn effects and and just the fact that he was brave enough to not cover up the the artifacts of the creation of the drawings was really inspiring for me so i think all the other ones i felt were like one of the it's not a negative but for me i'm much i'd be much more experimental um in my approach and i always felt that miyazaki kind of found a style and he tells a story with that style and he pushes the limits within that style but he doesn't go too far away one direction or another whereas takahata's stuff seems to just go all over the map in terms of like visual like art direction and um he can go all the way to kind of almost super realistic in Only Yesterday and then all the way to like super cartoony in the Yamadas. And then for Kaguya, he went, he kind of went really expressive and dramatic. So I always was so impressed with his range, you know. 
I think technically, technically for me, it's the it's the it's the level of detail and level of artistry that goes into every frame. I mean, like uh, we tend to simplify our characters and simplify our backgrounds as much as we can because we know just know how many hours go into like every single person on the team working on it. I just don't know how those people that work in those films sleep or find time to sleep or eat. They just there's so much work that goes into it. It's incredible. When we were uh, making we were making Song of the Sea and we were looking at Ponyo and I was saying, oh, imagine we could animate the, the sea like that. And it was just like, no, we can't. That's not humanly possible. But but they did. Yeah, but they're Japanese. They can do it. We can't, we can't animate the waves like that. There, there really is something in the water over there, isn't there? Because <laughs> I've been over there and I've talked to some of the animators there. And I think they have this whole structure of that we've totally lost in Western animation of kind of master and apprentice stuff. And that they're always trying to like prove themselves. And they have this like Zen like approach to like detail, as Ross says, and the kind of one upmanship of like how perfectly they can draw everything. and. I mean, to me, it is a big ask of any artist to do work at, at that level. And when I read uh, Miyazaki's uh, Turning Point, his uh, autobiography, I was like, I wouldn't like to work for him. Like when I was young, I used to think, oh, what a dream to work for an amazing director like that. But I think it would be a tough ask because what he demands of his artists is just phenomenal. Animating the grass blowing in the wind. Like, come on, man. But you do you do see those photos of like, you know, people sleeping on the floor in subway stations and stuff from <laughs> overworking and that. So you can kind of understand it. <laughs> Under their desks, yeah, that's the yeah. thing. Oh man. So so have, have you met anyone from Ghibli? Uh, Tom yeah. said he went over to Japan. Have you, have you met anyone over there? Did you yeah. meet Takata or, or Miyazaki? Yeah, I have two I have two anecdotes from both. <laughs> and they were both acting in the States because it was always around the Oscars. So I was at the Governor's Award when um, John Lasseter was given um, uh, Miyazaki a Lifetime Achievement Award, like a Governor's Award, and it was cool to be at that. And then um, I don't smoke, but uh, my producing partner, Paul, smoked cigarettes. So when I saw Miyazaki out having a cigarette, I borrowed a cigarette off Paul and went out and pretended to smoke just so I could hang out with him. And he was mightily amused. Through a translator, he was amused by the fact that I was coughing and spluttering over a cigarette. Just to, just to, and he said, oh, you can have my ashtray and stuff. So it was a very minor, like that was the interaction. I, and I said, it's also that thing, like, what do you say? Like, I'm just like, oh, thanks for your films. They're great. And Takahata was very warm. Again, it was all through a translator, but I hung out with him a little bit more because we were on the same press junket with Song of the Sea and Kagua. And, um, and, I, and, I, and he had a, a younger guy who spoke good English was his producer who's since gone on and set up Pon Up. And uh, we kind of got to know them a little bit more. But at this stage, Takahata was kind of old. And I remember the funniest thing was that our, we were all sitting there sweating and nervous when our category was going to come up for the Oscars and I turned around to see him and like you know all the other directors were like and he was asleep and I just loved the fact that he was like what the fuck I don't give a shit about it he was asleep at the Oscars and it was like our category and he was <laughs> I thought it was kind of amazing and awesome but um, he was very warm he was a really nice guy and he kind of took his time with us I felt like he was um uh, very um what's the word you know kind of avuncular grandfatherly about it you know he kind of felt he knew his position as a kind of legend of animation and i think that that tour with with kagua was kind of a, a swan song you know so he was very nice to meet at that point in his career i think he was be another person who would have been quite um you know formidable if i'd met him when he was younger and he we were in some kind of competition i think he was pretty <laughs> 
I'd, I'd love to bring uh, this in into your work that you're doing at Cartoon Saloon and that watching Wolfwalkers and thinking about what we might see in Ghibli films as well. There's such a strong connection to folklore in there that is still accessible to any audience. And we might watch uh, My Neighbor Totoro or Pompoko or The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, and we don't know the centuries background of those stories, but they absolutely still connect with everyone. And I'd love to kind of ask you how you transpose those traditional stories into making something that is still accessible to everyone. Yeah, Ghibli is always the best example, I think, of that, that you get a taste of Japanese culture and lifestyle and folklore and that kind of Shinto animist worldview is kind of transfused. But yet everyone can watch them and you, you don't need to go and learn about Japanese. It's interesting to see what's pure invention on the part of the directors and what's um, but it's 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 just you can watch the movie because I think it's about the emotional resonance like you try and dig into the folklore and find what's the aspect of it that you want to draw out to tell your story and I think that's what speaks to everyone so with Song of the Sea and um, the whole Selkie story the kind of direction that I kind of wanted to explore was the ideas of loss and I think that's super universal and then when we were looking at this we really wanted to talk about the independence and wildness that was represented by the wolves and the ability to to exist in both worlds at once like Ross and I talked a lot about how we're not actually separate from nature, we're part of nature, and that these this folklore tales where animals and humans could be either and both at the same time, and that was the aspect that we wanted to draw out. So I think you find the universal theme that speaks to folklore all over the world and people all over the world, and then that's the thing you, you focus on to make sure that everybody um, can relate to it, and then all the other stuff just becomes part of the flavor that makes it more individual and more interesting and not not generic yeah and i think if you if you um if you find out about the folklore along with the character along with the main character you know um that they're going on a journey of of uh, exploration at the same time as the audience then it makes them much more accessible so like robin doesn't know about wolf walkers at the start of the of the movie and as she finds out about it we find out about it you know so it, it immediately becomes much more accessible and then as tom was saying if it's a universal um uh you know uh there's a universal universal theme to it so that um, anyone in any other culture can follow the, the story of friendship and of this little girl being trapped and it's almost like the folklore part of it it takes a backstage you know that um it's it's kind of like a, an environment in which she has a, a personal meeting and a personal friendship and you mentioned uh admiring the artifacts of animation being left on screen in the tale of princess kaguya and that is something that is really evident in Wolfwalkers and it looks beautiful um what what was the thinking behind leaving those shapes on screen that people can see that how these forms have come together it's definitely evident in Maeve and the wolves and the wild animals and I think the the reason for that was was um to show that there's like an inner life and an inner, inner spirit to these characters very different from the townspeople who are cleaned up like with a very precise kind of hard uh, you know ink wood woodcut kind of uh, print style so like uh, the roughness and the scratchiness of the of the forest animals kind of shows this instinctive wildness that they have that they live under and it shows that underneath the surface there's this uh, huge energy there you know um so i think visually there's a huge contrast between the two worlds um but i think also uh we wanted to show how much like 
how much art goes into the making of of these cartoons that like um you know those scratchy lines and form lines used to be erased and then you'd be left with a perfect clean line and like they're beautiful the the original sketches that animators would use to explore and to develop the forms are actually beautiful in their own right so you know why not leave them on, on the screen and it used to be done a little bit more back in um uh, maybe by accident but back in in the times of like 101 dalmatians and that uh, when the artifacts might be left over and they might actually make it to the cell through the xerox process but there was a certain charm to that that we always loved and so this time we kind of did it intentionally yeah we're trying to make a virtue of the fact that we're working in hand-drawn you know make draw attention to the fact that it's hand-drawn and celebrate the fact that it's hand-drawn like i always like to see nick parks thumbprints on Wallace and Gromit you know it's just nice to see and we even had sections like the wolf vision that were all on paper and uh, even if we it was all based on a CG previs the final thing is all drawn on paper every every frame is drawn on sheets of paper and I think audiences uh, are now sophisticated enough that they've seen perfection in Pixar movies and they're kind of excited to see the craftsmanship and it's part of the story it's part of what we're talking about that there's you have to keep a certain spontaneity a certain chaotic you know liveliness to to things for to not like suck all the soul out of them like it seems like the puritan town doesn't really have any soul left in it especially the soldiers whereas the people in the forest are full of scratches and mistakes and rubbings out and fixes and that's kind of more lively and more positive in her in our little stories well I, I think there's a huge amount of trust in the audience that you might not get in other animated films that like here you've got playing with perspective in terms of like the layout of the town to the forest to the fields in between and the shapes of houses and how they might fold into each other and even multi-panel the sequences that you might feel come from a comic book mm-hmm. and like none of that actually makes you forget where anything is or anything like that and it, it only serves to kind of i suppose heighten the experience that you want to give people yeah i think we were we were trying out a lot of things in Secret of Kells, um, you know, because we were straight out of college and we were trying out a lot of things to see what what would be acceptable to the average audience, you know, and and if we went too far into abstract like non-perspective, that people would suddenly be removed from the story. But um, so I think we tested the waters very well in that in that first film, um, and and then uh, there was like there was one film that Tom showed me very early on. What was it? The, the Tale of the White Mare. Was it Son or? of the White Mare? Son of the Mare. White Mare. Marcel Yankovic. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes into complete abstraction. You know, <laughs> like absolutely mental psychedelic abstraction. Yeah. But yet you can still follow the story. So we were thinking, like, well, that's how far you can actually go. And the story can still be told. So, you know, we had a very high. I think it's a very very, um, naive kind of Western idea that the more like a photograph a painting is, the better it is. Where actually, I think the only answer to the fact that CG now is like completely invisible. Like people don't even realize they're watching CG a lot of the time when they watch a superhero movie. Like how much of Iron Man is actually Robert Downey Jr. And how much is like a CG model of Iron Man flying around. And so... There's nowhere left to go, in my opinion, except to explore all the different directions you can go in. And the fact is that Eastern European animation, some Japanese animation, has really been pushing out into other expressive directions. I saw a Japanese film called The Children of the Sea. Have you seen that? And oh, like, yeah. that just, just blew my socks off again because I was like, wow, like, look how brave they are and how far they can push into a really psychedelic or mind game. Like, those movies are really showing that animation is a language in itself. It's not 
less than see like less than live action and it's good if it looks like live action like that's a crazy way of thinking i think it's good the more we use what only animation can do and the braver we are with that the more the audience kind of and they're sophisticated now you know kids watch all kinds of crazy abstracted cartoons they play video games you know they read comics that are all like all different styles from one panel to the next so really think you owe to the audience to, especially the young audience to do something up to the level of dynamism that they expect now you know and I think what we can probably bring to that table then is like the use of traditional media um, you know, like, uh, and, and explore like the range of what are the artists that are in the studio, a lot of them are printmakers and painters and, you know, they, they work in traditional media. So we can, we can bring a lot of that on board and use that to heighten our storytelling. But then that's what I think that you do so well with, um, with, the, with, with particularly Wolf Walkers and Cows, with the whole cartoon saloon thing is you have that sense of experimentation of the form. Not to bring everything back to Ghibli, but over the course of the series, Jake and I have this, Takahata is the guy who couldn't draw, but was an experimenter with the form. Miyazaki could draw, create his own style, but became a great storyteller of these universal fantasy, you know, uh, natural uh, parables that had great universal meanings. You managed to do both in Wolf Walkers. It's incredibly experimental in a way that people might not see, especially mainstream audiences, but then you do have that core People will come out crying in the yeah. end as well. And I always feel a, I always feel a bit bad for Takada because he kind of made it this badge of honor that he couldn't draw, but he was actually pretty decent, you know. He just chose to hand over to like art directors and people that he felt. Whereas Miyazaki is much more like everyone's kind of an extra wrist, like everyone's an extra hand. To, if he could draw it all himself, I think he would, you know. And like he's just blow, like I read his comics like Nausicaa, and I'm like, how did he draw? Like this, like this is a life's work for any cartoonist to draw these like two volume telephone book thick comic books in between making like feature films. So yeah, they're two very different kind of geniuses. One was maybe maybe that's why Taka had maybe that's why Taka had said he couldn't draw because the the standard was up so high. (laughs) I know, yeah. I remember kind of believing that until I saw the 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 tale of Princess Kaguya behind the scenes and I saw his drawings and I was like, what the hell? He can totally draw, but not to that like amazing level of Miyazaki but you know he could make a very clear storyboard so um yeah but I I think that is interesting and I think even within the studio we're not as limited as that we don't have two founders that are the figureheads that everything has to follow we've got a really diverse and what's really interesting is that like Ross and I have been with the studio from the very beginning Nora as well but now we're starting to get people like Louise Bagnell coming up uh, another young director in the studio and most of our storyboard team were directors you know whether it was Guillaume or um, Louise or uh, Giovanna, like we have lots of people that are directors as well, and their voices are starting to come to the fore. So we're not really limited by our own talents. We're kind of, um, we're more like Takahashi that we've got the benefit of the talents of all these other people that we can draw on. So I'm excited. Maybe that's that. maybe that's one of the benefits of not going down the whole like master apprentice thing, yeah. in that someone who's young and talented can come in, and if they have a great idea, they can immediately just get up and start making it if the if the studio's behind it. Whereas I think maybe in the Ghibli model, like you have to work your way up the ladder and and put in twenty years of experience before. Yeah, you I think it's the positive side of not especially being a genius. I have to rely on other people. If I was like Miyazaki and I was such a genius, I could do everything myself. It might be painful because you want to do everything yourself. But thankfully, I'm not a genius, so I have to work with all these other people to get my ideas across. And I think that that leads to something a bit richer, you know. 
So, uh, gents, thank you so much for talking with us. One question that we always ask interviewees when we have guests on the show is, so the kernel of Ghibliotech started two, two and a half years ago when across the desk at work, I heard that Jake hadn't seen any Ghibli films. So ah. I sort of grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, I'm going to show, him, show you all of these films that I love. Um, so now whenever we, now that we've seen all the Ghibli films, we now need to go need to find out where to go next. So whenever we have guests on, we ask, if you could recommend us a film, it doesn't have to be an animated film. It doesn't have to be feature length, even if there's a Hungarian short you'd recommend us, but could you recommend us something to watch? Hungarian short, Sisyphus, Marcel Jankovic. Yeah. Um, I mean, like the, the Son of the White Mare, you might have seen this year go down that road. You might as well watch that. You know? Yeah, go, go, go deep dive into Cold War crazy Hungarian animation. There you go. There you'll really blow your mind. excellent oh thanks so much guys that's been really lovely to talk to you about the the new film the old films and of course studio ghibli as well lovely to talk to you too guys thank you again to ross stewart and tom moore from cartoon saloon there lending us their time to talk about wharf walkers and of course the wonderful world of studio ghibli which is something that we're going to be carrying on doing for the next few weeks of this podcast series uh if you want to watch wolf walkers you can do so right now it's in uk cinemas but it is going to be on demand through apple tv plus in december as well i must say i i absolutely loved being able to talk to Tom and Ross today. Cartoon Saloon have made some of my favourite films over the last 10 years or so. Song of the Sea is up there as one of my favourite animated films or films full stop of all time. And you know, you know, if, if we were going to venture outside of Ghibli and outside of anime into world animation, looking for studios who have high quality feature film catalogues, you know, Cartoon Saloon might be the one. And I don't know, listeners, if you want to get ahead of us, you can watch their films all over the place, I think. The Breadwinner is on Netflix UK. Song of the Sea is on Prime Video UK. And Secret of Kells, I think you can rent or still get on Blu-ray too. And when travel is a more foreseeable thing, I feel like we could do a micro version of our Japan series, Michael, and just uh, just head over the channel and uh, visit the lads. <laughs> if you say it's on, on mic, Jake, it has to happen. <laughs> So this is the first of the Whispers from the Heart mini-series. We have such exciting things coming up. Interviews with people whose work I don't even know. Uh, It's been a real eye-opener for me as well. Um, But next week, we are talking with Oscar winner Domi Shi, director behind the Pixar short Bao. Uh, We're talking about the influence of Isao Takahata and Ghibli and also the representation of food in animation. And beyond that, there's so many wonderful conversations. Steph introduced us to the world of Steven Universe, uh, and that led to a fantastic conversation with Rebecca Sugar. And speaking of Stevens, we also talk with Steve Alpert, uh, who was the man who brought Ghibli to the world. He was their first head of the international division back in the days when they were selling Princess Mononoke to the States and was there, um, was the man in the room uh, when Spirited Away uh, wins all of its awards. A fascinating, incredibly deep dive, (laughs) deep dive nerdy conversation there for the Ghibli diehards, I think. Yeah, and we might be... uh calling our shot about our guests um but i think we might have at least two films within this series that we focus on that are going to get nominated for the animated feature oscar 
because we're ending the series with Mike Jones, one of the writers of Soul, the upcoming Pixar release that's going to be on demand in December as well. Yeah, we have a huge lineup. So hopefully you'll stick with us for some great interviews, some great chat. Um, and until then, you can drop us an email if you like. The mailbag is open, ghibli at little.studios.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Ghibliotech. And if you want to see what we're up to individually, you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. You can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. And you can follow Steph at underscore Steph Watts. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe. And Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts and Harold McShiel. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.